If we take things like family, can we think about it instead of family tree and having students describe their families? Can we look at representation of families in target cultures? How are they represented? How are they discussed in different in different ways? Um, and then, you know, for students being able, being able to discuss their own lives, thinking about it more in, in terms of circles of care and, you know, who's important to the students in their own lives. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. We are joined by the authors of Words and Actions, Teaching Languages Through the Lens of Social Justice, to discuss how we can rethink and transform our teaching to better serve our students and our world. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. We are excited to have Drs. Cassandra Glynn, Pamela Wesley, and Beth Wassel with us today. They gave a talk as part of our monthly LRC speaker series on social justice and language learning. And we are excited to continue our conversation about this very important topic. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Cassie, Beth, and Pam. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Before we dive into the subject of your talk, um, we'd like to get started by hearing a little bit about all of your backgrounds and your path with languages and language learning. Uh, so, Beth, maybe you could get us started. Sure. So, I was the geeky kid who, in third grade, just wanted to learn French for no reason. Um, we didn't have languages in school, in elementary school. So, I remember, you know, uh, getting a dictionary and starting to learn French that way. <laughs> uh, at that time, you know, the, we didn't have the internet. So it was my French bilingual dictionary and me. Um, fast forward <laughs> to ninth grade when I finally did have an opportunity to take a Spanish class. And um, I, uh, you know, went from there, majored in Spanish in college, became a world language teacher in Spanish uh, at the high school level and then found my way into teacher education where I primarily work with world languages teachers. Awesome. Pam, how about you? So um, I was also geeky. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I see a trend here. I a, see a, trend. a common thread on our podcast, really. <laughs> um, I studied uh, French, uh, and it was one of my favorite classes. I actually went to Concordia Language Villages in, in northern Minnesota, which I think we're going to hear more about in a moment. Mm -hmm. um, but I went there um, when I was in middle school and just just loved it, just loved the idea of being, I grew up in a monolingual English household, so did not, um, you know, did not have languages at home other than English. Um, but my, my, my dad actually studied Russian because this was the 80s. Huh. And um, he, so he took some classes in Russian and so he would sometimes say things to me in Russian and sometimes he studied a little bit of German and he would say things to me in German. And I actually think that that kind of exposure for anybody listening who are parents, I actually think like that that kind of exposure can be very um, influential huh. um, on kids. Just if they're raised in a monolingual household, to just bring in other languages, even incidentally, I think can be really important because I think that really sparked my interest. So I majored in it in college and um, worked at Concordia Language Villages every summer. Um, so I was studying French in college, but then I also would go and teach it in the summers um, for, for a long time. And then... Um, uh, decided what, you know, at one point in my, my early 20s, I was like, well, what have I always enjoyed doing? I've always enjoyed teaching. And so 
um, always enjoyed teaching French, always enjoyed teaching at the language villages. So then I um, got into teaching and um, was a teacher for a while and then decided I wanted to research what was going on with my students. And so then um, got my PhD and now I work from the University of Minnesota and now I work at the University of Iowa in teacher education and, um, and then also in researching um, how languages are, are taught and learned um, and especially in terms of um, attitudes, perceptions, and beliefs of stakeholders like students mm-hmm. and teachers. Terrific. And Cassie, what about you? <laughs> well, I'm the third geek in the video. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and a lot of my language learning and passion for language teaching sort of revolves around um, Carol Ann Dahlberg, if you're familiar with Carol Ann Dahlberg yep. and Helena Curtin. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I actually grew up in the vicinity of Concordia College. And so Carolyn Dahlberg and Helena Curtin had, they ran this program for um, FLES teachers, or for teachers to learn how to become FLES teachers. They ran it in the summers at Concordia College. And so when I was growing up, it was something that you could go to really low cost. Um, kids all over in the community could attend because we were kind of the guinea pigs for teaching teachers how to teach language at early levels. And so that's when I first, so my parents sent me to that every single summer. And and I didn't realize who Carolyn Dahlberg was at the time. <laughs> and then um, we took Concordia Language Villages as well. Um, loved Valdse, fell in love with Valdse. Mm-hmm. Luckily now my own children love Valdse. And, um, and then when I got into high school, there was an opportunity to volunteer as an assistant in that same program that Carolyn was running. So I did that and um, worked with uh, as an assistant for German and French teachers. I took German and French in high school. And my um, my German teacher in high school was also a French teacher. So I wanted to be just like her. I wanted to be a German and French teacher and major in German and French just like her. So I did. Um, and, and then when I went to college, I wanted to go to Concordia because Concordia Language Villages. Well, Caroline Dahlberg then became my mentor in college. And, nice. um, and so then when I got into graduate school, I remember my, um, my advisor, Dee Tedek at the University of Minnesota asked me, you know, well, what do you want to do with a PhD? And I said, I want to be Carol Ann Dahlberg. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, I ended up back at my alma mater where Carol Ann Dahlberg was my mentor. And now I'm doing what Carol Ann Dahlberg did back in the day. So that's, uh, that's sort of how I went down this path. So I love it. That's yeah. awesome. I mean, don't we all want to turn into our <laughs> idols and the people we, we look up to? <laughs> yeah. That's great. Um, so the three of you gave a talk based on your book titled Words and Actions, Teaching Languages Through the Lens of Social Justice. The second edition of the book that you co-authored together was published in 2018 by Actful. Can you please walk our listeners through the principles of social justice education and how they connect with the guidelines and standards in world language teaching? So uh, I, I would say that there's a few different frameworks that have informed um, our work in social justices education for world languages classrooms. And um, we tend to use a definition of social justice by Sonia Nieto, who talks about a philosophy and approach and actions that embody treating all people with fairness, respect, dignity, and generosity. Um, but I would say that really um, the uh, framing of, of the way that we um, define social justice education stems from work um, by 
critical pedagogues, um, those folks who are working in anti-racist education, um, the recent, more recent work on culturally sustaining pedagogy. Um, some of our colleagues have done good work on intercultural competence um, and even uh, some of the work that's been done in bilingual um, and T-cell education around linguistically responsive education. And so all of those have, have been influences on the, the um, you know, I would say principles of, of uh, our work. Um, but I think, you know, the thing that, that we emphasize is that it doesn't have to be um, uh, doing social justice education in the world language classroom isn't an add-on or something that you do, you know, on a day that you're not focusing on language, uh-huh. that it's really something that's integrated in um, into your language instruction. And we talk about that a lot in the book of these, you know, these connections that we can make between teaching language and emphasizing some of these, you know, more critical social justice um, ideas, topics, themes. So what are some specific examples of how language educators can integrate social justice issues in their classrooms? And uh, how do activities and tasks differ at different proficiency levels? So I think, um, you know, as Beth talked about, we, we don't want it to just be an add-on and we want it to really be, become um, a, a natural part of the classroom and an integral part of the classroom. And so even, and, you know, it really, it goes beyond, it goes beyond just um, an activity. It goes beyond just uh, developing a lesson mm-hmm. or a unit. It even comes yeah. down to, you know, how do you set up your syllabus? How do you... Um, how do you build community and develop those group dynamics? Um, how, you know, how do you even arrange your classroom? How do you have students engaging with each other? Um, it really informs everything that you're doing in the classroom on a daily basis. And then when we get down into the planning process, right, after you've, you know, sort of laid the groundwork with thinking about all of those other pieces that make up your classroom and your community, and we get into the planning um, I really, I really want to encourage teacher. Well, we really want to encourage teachers to um, to transform topics and to let go of some of those more traditional things that we've we've always done. You know, like um, I, we talk about with families, like letting go of doing a family tree. Let go of like you know why is it important that students have to be able to describe everything in their house. Mm-hmm. Is that something that they need to be able to do? Why is it important that students have to be able to describe their school schedule? Is that something that they really need to do? Or can we transform that and make it more meaning, meaningful and relevant, things that are actually going on and, on a daily basis in their own communities and the target cultures? So, um, you know, if we take things like family, um, can we think about it instead of of, you know, family tree and having students describe their families, can we look at um, representation of families in target cultures? How are they represented? How are they, um, uh, how are they discussed in different, in different ways? Um, And then, you know, for students being able to discuss their own lives, thinking about it more in in terms of circles of care and, you know, who's important to the students in their own Mm -hmm. lives. Um, getting into, you know, um, other topics in terms of um, interrogating representation in media, um, using popular songs. Um, you know, I, I referenced um, in our talk, I referenced Sammy Deluxe, um, mm-hmm. a, a German um, artist 
who you know raps about um, underrepresentation of BIPOC in um, in media. Well, that's a really good jumping off point, and it's it's important. It's relevant. Students can look at it in their own cultures and compare it to the target cultures. Um, but I, I really. I really believe that it's important that we're transforming these topics because if we if we think about even the topic of underrepresentation in terms of different topics that we teach in the language classroom, let's look at even underrepresentation of of enrollment in in our current world language classes. And so, like, how is the curriculum that we're currently teaching contributing to that underrepresentation? Why why do we have an underrepresentation of certain groups of students? particularly students of color in world language. Uh-huh. So if if we think about the fact that we're already sort of, you know, um, marginalizing students with the topics that we're teaching in world language, how can we transform those to be more inclusive, to, um, to really delve into topics that matter to students, that are important to students now, um, and move away from this idea um, that, you know, we have to teach particular topics and, and start to ask ourselves, why? Why do we think we have to teach those topics? Yeah. In your talk, you also discuss the framework by Hackman um, and the components for social justice education. And you highlighted the, um, the one corner um, or the one component, the tools for critical analyses. Um, so what can we do to encourage students to reflect more critically on these issues as part of their own language journey? Oh, I think that a lot of students are already mm-hmm. primed to be critical thinkers. And I think they do critical thinking um, as a part of their education um, in, in a history class or in, a, um, in an English class, you know, looking, looking thoughtfully at what is the, what is the source of what what they're reading, I think that that's, that tends to be something that, that is a part of students' lives. I know at the high school level that, you know, the idea of me, media literacy as one of our skills is, is something that's really emphasized. So I think bringing that into the language classroom should not be, um, uh-huh. you know, you, you don't necessarily have to start at zero, right? So students will be able to um, come up with ideas about how to look critically at the text that they're using. So one example that we used in the talk was how if you use a textbook as a language teacher or you use a set of materials, maybe online materials, one easy um, thing to do with students at any level, and this can be a novice task as well, is have them look at who is represented in their class materials. What voices are heard? Um, what are their pictures of? Mm-hmm. What, and looking at who is there and who is not there. Um, I think that student, and, and so that's, you know, at a, at a novice level, that's a counting activity and a categorizing activity. And even reporting on it can be very low, very low proficiency language um, can be used. Um, at an upper level, you can, do, you can look at more complex materials, you can look at Themes you can you can do more um, yeah. sort of comparison contrast analysis between different resources, but I think I think students are ready to look at uh, materials with a critical lens um, and to and to look at you know mm-hmm. and, and to be I think they need to be invited. <laughs> I think it's good to invite them and to say like let's look at who's on who's in this picture and who's not in this picture, um, or let's compare two images and see you know what which one is which one do you think is more representative. Um, I, I do think that that's something that a lot of students are, are ready to do. And, and then the issue is, how do we invite that into the language classroom and make that a part of what we do together? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I guess that that would be my that would be my main suggestion is sort of build mm-hmm. on what what students already have, um, and and use that in the classroom, and yeah, mm-hmm. sure, and, and sure. you know, then you don't have to have all the answers either. As the I mean, that's one thing is you don't have to be able to say, okay, well, here's the answer of what what this mm-hmm. critical look is. You can also have them bring their own insights, um, have them bring their own examples from the media. Um, and have them talk about that. And that can be really interesting, too, to just see where, what they come up with. Yeah, I also liked how you stressed in the talk that we should make connections to local communities or to the communities that our students are parts of. And, and that can be, I mean, that can be a very broad variety of different communities, whether they are online or truly local or, you know, in the target culture. So that was another another great point. I think with the connecting to community organizations and even looking at, you know, I, ta- I, I mentioned in the talk, when you look at what kinds of advocacy um, is taking place in target cultures, that can be really inspirational to students and they can see perhaps, okay, well, this is taking place in the target culture. What is something similar that I could do closer to home in my own community? Mm-hmm. Um, and it also gets us away from always focusing on issues, in, hmm. in target cultures. And I, I yeah. think we have to be really careful about that when we're, um, when we're integrating social justice into our, our lessons and activities, because otherwise students, um, stu- it, you run the risk of students starting to feel sorry for a particular group of people. And we really want to be careful with that because there's a lot of hope, there's a lot of action, there's a lot of movement taking place in our target cultures. And we need to draw attention to that because you know, as I said, that can be really inspirational to students of all different ages. So what's one piece of advice you would give to language educators who are working on reframing their teaching? What's one thing they can integrate immediately tomorrow? One piece of advice I have is that this is a process and everybody is on a continuum. And so, um, you know, I mean, I think you have to be patient with yourself and um, you know, and I, I always like Wiggins and McTie's um, advice of, think big and start small, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so those incremental steps, but, but knowing that this takes time and you're constantly learning, I, you know, and Beth and Pam talked um, at the beginning about how, you know, the three of us are on a journey too, and we're constantly learning as well. We're not done learning about um, how to do this work and, you know, different things that we can do. We're constantly learning from teachers. And so, um, so my, you know, my advice is think big, start small, and just keep learning, keep moving on your continuum and know that your continuum is different than somebody else's. Yeah, so I can, I can maybe uh, connect to one of the things that Cassie just mentioned, and that's around, you know, examining your own journey and um, maybe jumping into some of the work around identity, exploring your own identity um, or identities, um, and uh, being open to starting to listen to the stories of others to recognize their identities and perhaps some of the differences in their experiences around um, around privilege, around oppression, around different forms of discrimination um, as a way to start to develop that empathy. And since so much of um, of of language is our stories, you know, mm. I think how we learn language and the kind of language you use is connected to stories, you know, making space in your own life for listening to some of those stories, finding some of those stories, whether it's something, you know, in a book or an article, or it's a documentary or a movie, you know, even fiction, I think is really provide some good 
um, entry points for us to think about some of these ideas. Um, I think, you know, again, starting, starting with ourselves, um, and, but then recognizing that, you know, some of the, 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 the work that has to be done is at the structural systemic institutional level down Mm -hmm. the line. Um, but yeah, some of that, so much of it too is individual and, and interpersonal. Um, and we can start there. I guess the integrate, integrate immediately tomorrow is a, is a tough question because I do feel like that in some ways that goes against the idea of mm-hmm. um, process and the idea mm-hmm. of sort yeah. of development that is key to this work, that, that there's, not a, there's not a quick social justice trick that we can say, do this tomorrow. Um, and that, you know, which is, which is an interesting thing to think about because I do know that the most popular sessions at a lot of practitioner conferences are yep. you know, <laughs> 10 things to bring to your classroom tomorrow, yeah. you know, and you can't really do that with social justice mm-hmm. in the same way you can't do, I mean, there are a lot of sort of personal, you know, journeys about identity, connecting with other individuals, connecting with students that Beth was talking about, the idea of, you know, changing curriculum incrementally that, that Cassie was talking about. Those aren't things that are, that are, that are, you know, tips and tricks that can happen tomorrow. I do think that things like looking at, looking with a fresh, with fresh eyes at the materials that you've been using can be something that, that you can do right away is, you know, I've always used this text because it does this, do I need to use this text? Can I? Are there other texts out there that have different types of authors that have different perspectives? Are there other ways that I can that I can, you know, if you're doing something with, you know, for example, with literature, is there another piece of literature that might meet this same theme? I know that there's a lot of that that's mm-hmm. going on with disrupt texts in English language arts. The idea of, you know, why are why is our canon so white? Um, are there other texts that do the same thing that Catcher in the Rye does? I think that there are there are parallel things. In, in world language education, are there parallel texts um, or, you know, are there videos or, or you know, audio that, that could be used instead and sort of letting yourself open up to, to changing some of that and particularly in terms of letting new voices into the classroom. Um, I think mm-hmm. that that can be a step that can be taken pretty soon. But again, yeah. that needs to be part of a, a larger process um, that is not just about, you know, picking this text instead of this text, but also how do I treat this text um, thoughtfully and engagingly and in a way that respects the text and the author and the voices that are in it, that also needs to happen too. So um, so there's not a quick fix, but I, hopefully some of these ideas have, have been able to, to get people set off on the path. Yeah. So maybe we can invite and even challenge our listeners to do tomorrow. What What they should do tomorrow is to look at themselves and rethink how they teach. And, you know, as, as you just said, Pam, look at their materials and think about what's, how things are represented and what assumptions um, we might bring in implementing these materials to our, to our classrooms. Mm-hmm. And one, one other thing that's also an easy next day thing that we didn't talk much about is inviting student voice into the conversation. Yeah. You know, I think that it's it's rare for us to ask students, you know, what are some of the ways that, um, you know, we are uh, this this particular um, class or lesson mm-hmm. or other things that you've experienced in classrooms have been culturally sustaining, have been mm-hmm. supportive, um, have been inclusive or, you know, where have I missed the mark being willing to, you know, to to take some um some of the students' perspectives as a, you know, as a starting point to 
to develop, grow, change as, as an educator. Um, again, I just don't think we, we ask students enough, you know, for their, their experiences and, and use them as a, as a starting point for change in our practice. And with that, you know, I mean, realizing you don't have to be the expert on, on mm-hmm. everything and you don't have to be the one as the holder of all of the knowledge either. I, you know, even just teaching middle school methods, I invited a panel of middle schoolers and one of the sixth graders, their, her advice to future teachers was stop talking, be quiet and let your students talk. Because if you let us talk and you stop talking, you might see things in a completely different way that you didn't before, which I thought was incredibly insightful for a sixth grader. But I think it applies to every level of education yeah. through all the way through college and grad school. Um, you know, and so if you and I think that Beth is absolutely right. That's something that you can do right away, um, both with inviting, you know, those opinions and mm. with just being quiet as the teacher and listening to your students. Wonderful. Well, um, maybe I aspire to be that sixth grader when I grow up. <laughs> I think we all do. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Before we sign off, we'd like to ask you to share your favorite word in a language you speak, you love, you are learning, you want to learn. What are those words? Do we have a volunteer to go first? I can go first. My favorite word in French is rambobiné. Ooh. which people don't even really use anymore because it means rewind. Nobody <laughs> 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 rewinds anything anymore. But rumbobinet is just such a joyful word. It is. It I is. love it. That's, <laughs> that's awesome, Pam. Beth, what about you? What's your favorite word? Uh, mine is tiki-smikis, and it means picky in Spanish. Like picky, <laughs> like you don't want to eat certain things. And Uh, I spent a semester with my kids in Spain a couple years ago, and I just was so delighted to learn this word because they were obviously a little bit picky about the, you know, mm-hmm. the new cuisine that they had experienced. That's great. It's a fun word. It's just such a fun word to say. Yeah. Cassie, what's your favorite word? I actually had two. Um, and I'm, I'm going to give in German because um, I do. I have I admit I love German just a little bit more than French. Um <laughs> So my, my first is gemütlich because, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's just, it's cozy and there are certain, and there are many times in my own home with my children that I'm, you know, I'm like, oh, this is so gemütlich. And it's the only, it's just the way that I can describe it. Um, and I also love the word shicky Mickey <laughs> to describe <laughs> it. So similar to Beth's, but it's kind of like, you know, hoity-toity, shicky Mickey. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, very, very good. Um, well, this was great. Thank you so much for speaking of language with us, Cassie, Pam, and Beth. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Next week, we will talk about the connections between theater, music, and language learning with Giulia Andreoni, a PhD candidate in Italian at Cornell. Until then... Auf Wiederhören! The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or look for Cornell LRC on Facebook and Twitter. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners 
and do stay tuned for our next episode.